Well, greetings to you all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. We are uh, we're from the Grace Reformed Church in Pretoria. That's a church plant uh, very similar to this one, maybe just a few years ahead. We're about 10 years, 11 years into it now. And so I bring you greetings from Grace Reformed Church, a church very much like this one, like I said, doctrinally and in every way. It's my privilege to bring you God's word this morning, so please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, will be our focus this morning, Acts 5, but I want to read the end of chapter 4 uh, as, we, as we get into this section, because really it starts, well, end of 4 summarizes some of the uh, developments in the early church to that point, and then 5 introduces a challenge. So we'll read from Acts chapter 4 from verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down and lay at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, we humble ourselves in your presence this morning. And at the foot of your cross, Lord Jesus, 
As we hear your word, Holy Spirit, speak to us from this ancient text. Make these truths living in our hearts. Apply them in our lives so that we also will have great fear and great respect for you, Lord Jesus, Almighty God on the throne, and that we may hear and fear and worship and obey as you call us to do by your grace. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that shakes us often as Christians is the story, the sto- our stories that we read in the news or hear perhaps, of so-called Christian leaders who are false, fakes, hypocrites. Uh, maybe you, you, hear, you hear bad cases sometimes. Those who are called to be leaders in the church or in the Christian environment, and they're just bad. They're wicked, twisted people. Uh, You read about Catholic priests who have abused children. Or you read about ministers who are exploiting their office to fleece the people and get rich from the poorest of the people. And it's just wrong. It it just rubs us wrong. More than that, we know it's wrong. In society, even unbelievers know it's wrong. And they draw attention to this as as, as a picture of the church. And they, they say, you know, the church is just full of hypocrites. And it gives God's people a bad name. And what they're saying, actually, that's the worst of it. What they're saying is actually true. Such people are are hypocrites. Now, hypocrisy, or being a hypocrite, is a terrible thing. It's the practice of claiming to have higher standards or or being more noble or moral than, than is actually the case. Hypocrisy, false pretense, or insincerity, or... Duplicity, you know, having, having, talking out of two sides of your mouth or, or saying different things to different people. We, we know what it is, right? It's hypocrisy. And especially when we are Christian hypocrites. That's, in some ways, that's the worst kind, isn't it? Christian hypocrites. Those who are supposed to be leaders in the church, terribly, tragically uh, doing the opposite. But we're not here to point fingers at other people because that's not why we came to worship this morning. And so those hypocrites out there, well, this message isn't for them. We are here. We are here to study God's word together and to learn from this very important passage that speaks about hypocrisy. So here's the question. What does hypocrisy look like in my life and in your life? What does hypocrisy look like in our, life, in our lives? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, with Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, there's a communion table here. We're going to enjoy fellowship with Christ. And we look forward to that as those who need that grace. But if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, John says we're a lie. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I'm just going to assume that all of us are hypocrites this morning. I don't know you too well, but I'm just going to make that assumption because we just read from Scripture that that sin is there, whether we are hiding it well or not. That being said, let's, let's get into this passage and see what it teaches us about hypocrisy and, and, and the solution for it, actually, as well. Chapter 5 is what we want to focus on, and we need to understand this history in its context 
I read from chapter 4 because it's really a beautiful time in the church, right? It's, a, it's an amazing time in the church. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, just an amazing time. The Holy Spirit had, the Spirit of Christ had filled the church at Pentecost and graced them in every way. Chapter 2 is a beautiful description of the fellowship that they enjoyed. And at the end of chapter 4, we have some of the same. Uh, verse 32 there. And, and with, um, well, 32 introduces it. The full number of believed had one heart and soul, and, and they were all sharing everything in common. Verse 33, chapter 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their, their witness, their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The gospel was being proclaimed with, with great power, and great grace was upon them all. Great power. Great grace. That's, that's how the church was characterized. Beautiful, isn't it? A beautiful church picture. Genuine gospel fellowship. One heart and mind. Unity. Union in Christ. Unity with Christ. And then that produces this fellowship, this, this unity with each other. And there was a willingness even to share each other's possessions. They weren't clutching onto their own things, but they were sharing as anyone had need. And, and in fact, there's a good example here. His name is Barnabas, right? Barnabas is held up as a high example in, in the book of Acts. Well, he was called by the apostles, a son of encouragement, somebody who was very encouraging. Um, Joseph was his name, but they called him Barnabas. And he was a sharing, caring person, and he shared for the benefit of the whole community. You see there his acts of generosity. He, he had some property, apparently, a field. He wasn't from Jerusalem. He was a native of Cyprus, so he was a, a foreigner in some ways, but he was there, a Jewish foreigner. And he sold this property, and he, and he shared the proceeds. He laid it at the apostles' feet, that phrase of offering to the church uh, some of the possessions that the Lord had given him. So there's generosity there as well. And so we see a picture here of the early church, a beautiful picture of this beautiful church that by grace was displaying the witness of Christ in every way. And then a challenge arises, chapter 5. Now, when you read the book of Acts, you see that repeatedly. Beautiful progress of the gospel, advance of Christ's kingdom, and then a challenge. And that challenge is dealt with, the Holy Spirit guiding the church to deal with the challenge. And then, then it's beautiful again, there's an advance of the gospel, and, and then there's a challenge. And then there's, you see, it's, it's, it, that's what the book of Acts is doing. It's showing how each challenge is overcome by the gospel, and then it leads to the growth of the church. We'll come back to that thought at the end. But here's the challenge, chapter 5, verse 1. A man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. Now, that, that, the names there, Ananias and Sapphira, that's how I say it, but maybe you say Ananias and Sapphira. I, I don't know how it said in your language. We, we all probably pronounce it a little bit different. Ananias is the way I learned it. His name means, the Lord is gracious. That's what his name actually means. And Sapphira, it's Aramaic, actually, for beautiful. So, a nice couple, eh? The Lord is gracious and beautiful. Beautiful couple. Nice. They, it just, they must have been a nice contribution to that church community, eh? When you see a couple like that walk in and you say, ah, these people, these, this is a nice couple. Their names, they don't betray their hearts, do they? Because we, we know what happens. We know this story. Who names their son? I'm going to name my boy Ananias. You know, that's a good name, right? Strong name. The Lord is gracious. But no one uses that name today because we know the rest of the story. But on the outside, everything looked great. And that's the point here. On the outside, everything looked great. Members of the church, part of this, this community, great grace, great power is there. In fact, 
There's a contrast in the first verses of chapter 5, intentionally a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias. Because Barnabas had a land, right? He sold the proceeds, laid it at the feet of the apostles. The same language is used of Ananias. He had some property, and he laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. Uh, so there's a, con- there's a comparison here, but there's a, there's a difference as well. They're not the same kind of people. Because unlike Barnabas, Ananias, it says, kept back for himself some of the proceeds. Actually, in the Greek, the idea there, same word of, that we use for the word embezzlement. It wasn't quite embellis- as embezzlement. I'm going to get to that. In fact, let's, let's be very precise. What was the sin of Ananias here? It was his property, and he sold it. And even Peter says that, right? It was his property. He could do what he wants with it. He sold it. It was his proceeds, the money bag, right? And he could do what he wanted with it. It was his, it's not, there's not communism being taught here, okay? Let me just make that very clear. Chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Acts is not teaching communism because Peter says very clearly it was his property and it was his proceeds. That's not the problem here. The sin was not a sin of generosity or lack of generosity. No, he was being generous. He gave quite a large sum, it seems, and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was not sinning in that way. There was a different kind of sin here. What was his sin? After he had said he was going to give it, and after he pretended to have given it, he kept back some of it. So there's a duplicity here. There's a dishonesty. There's a, well, there's, there's a hypocrisy in his character. Not a lack of generosity, but the sin of false pretense, the sin of hypocrisy. And so we've got to be very precise here. His was a sin of hypocrisy. Generosity is a great blessing for the church community, and we see that in Barnabas. Hypocrisy is a great curse for the church community, and we see that depicted in the life of Ananias. Deceit. A partial contribution presented as the full amount. A a, a conscious decision in their hearts to be a bit slippery, a bit shady. Right? To twist it slightly. To kind of make it appear other than it was. That, that's the sin here. Seeking human esteem and praise, but not doing it in an honest way. Now, we see in the narrative, then it goes on, verse 4, Peter is given wisdom, isn't he? Peter, the discerning church leader, uh, he's given wisdom, and he asks the question, uh, well, he first specifies the sin. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, it was still at your disposal. There's no communism here. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So Peter is examining the heart motives, right? The wise church leader now is examining the heart motives to say what's going on here. And, and Peter somehow, did he, did he suspect something here? Did the, did the Holy Spirit prompt him maybe? It doesn't say, right? So we can, we can just... We can assume that he didn't have any other evidence than we have here in the text. No inner knowledge. Maybe he, he had some suspicions. Who knows? But he starts to ask some questions. By careful examination of all the facts, he, he finds through discernment that there's a problem here. Uh, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? And he does the same again for the, the wife, doesn't he? When Sapphira comes, again, he's, just, he's not making assumptions. He's not overplaying it. He just asks a question. Tell me, he says to Sapphira, 
whether you sold the land for so much? That's an honest question. Peter's discerning. So by careful examination, Peter, the church leader, uh, discovers the problem, doesn't he? And he discovers also that Sapphira was a co-conspirator with her husband. She was in on the plot with him. And she was also responsible. Now, it could be that she dragged him into it, or he dragged her into it, or maybe together they, they planned this. You know, at first they were going to give the whole thing, and they said, well, let's just hold back 5%, then 5% became 10%. You know how the discussion might have gone, right? We could just make all these things up. We don't know. But either way, they were both uh, implicated in this plot, this sin, this hypocrisy. They agreed together to be deceitful, to act in hypocrisy. And so what's the outcome? The outcome, well, it's, it's pretty abrupt, isn't it? God purifies his church. And he matures gospel fellowship. And so I think that's the first lesson we see from this passage. As, as harsh as that sounds to the ear at first, especially in today's world, what is God doing through this narrative? Well, there's a punishment for false witnessing, false witnesses. Because you see, Jesus had said to his church in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 we see the outcome of that, when the Holy Spirit comes, they were to be his witnesses. And that's what we read from end of chapter 4, verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony, their witness to the resurrection. The gospel witness of Christ was going forth with great power. But then comes this challenge to that, to that witness. Duplicity. Hypocrisy. And what is the greatest challenge to telling the truth? It's not outright lies or challenging the truth. It's pretending to tell the truth when you're not. Hypocrisy. There's a challenge to the truth-telling that this church was called to be part of. And so there's a punishment in Scripture. Scripture makes it very clear. Do not admit A charge against the elder, it says, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's based on a principle from Moses' law uh, in in other parts of Scripture. Uh, There's there's a truth-telling that we are called to be as a church. And when we do the opposite, we're actually quite quite distracting from our purpose. And so there's a truth here. Number one, the first truth, God purifies his church. At first, at times he acts quickly, at other times he acts slowly, but he deals with false witnesses. He deals with hypocrisy. In this case, it was death, right? Two people died. Other times, God allows the false and the true to grow up together. The wheat and the weeds, we, we read about that, right? Or the, the good fishes and the bad fishes, Jesus' parables. And we sometimes, sometimes those who call themselves Christians are not Christians. And it only takes over time that we actually... We, we reveal, God reveals it, or their lives show it, that there's, there's something wrong here. But God purifies his church. That's what we see in chapter 5, the first part. And we see the consequence of church discipline as well. You know, at first, when we read this passage, and I, I've thought the same, it's very harsh, isn't it? They only held back a bit of the money. It's not so bad, is it? And they died. Two people died. Just like that. I mean, isn't this a little harsh? But that's what happened. That's what God did. And verse 11, what does verse 11 say? And great fear came upon the whole church. 
and upon all who heard these things. God knows what he's doing. His word purifies the church. Does this history have any value for us today? You say, for us today, no, this is postmodern world, this is South Africa, democracy, you know, talking about things like this, or even church discipline, it doesn't really fit well with us today sometimes, does it? I mean, uh, come on, guys. You know, church leaders who act like that, like Peter, come on, I mean, he's going to make people leave. Maybe you've heard that before. Our numbers are going to decrease if we act like that. Or, why are you being so harsh? What will people think about us? Or even, maybe you've heard the charge, you must be kind. Jesus was kind. Jesus was gentle and loving. It says that in the Word, right? We, we read, we, I think, we, didn't we read that from Matthew, Matthew 9? Or Matthew 10? I forget. Gen, Jesus was gentle. He was kind. You should be like Jesus. None of this church discipline stuff. I mean, they even say that of parents who spake their children today, right? They say, ah, you know, that's just not loving. But that's not how the Bible presents it. You see, sinful society always downplays the serious problem of sin, of disobedience. The world often views discipline as bad. Any restrictions, any discipline must be bad. That's how the world sees it. Laws and rules and punishment. Too harsh. Not loving. But of course, we know the world's value systems are upside down and backward, aren't they? Compared to the teaching of Scripture. And we see that here as well. Church discipline is good when it is done according to God's Word. Just like disciplining children is good when it is done according to God's Word in love for the purpose of maturing the child and the family. Discipline is meant to be loving. Discipleship, it's a similar word, isn't it? Discipline, discipleship. It's loving, it's correction, it's guidance for the long term. It usually doesn't lead to death. Uh, We hope it doesn't. In fact, it's supposed to be corrective, so it doesn't. Sin must be dealt with. Hypocrisy must be dealt with properly. Because we need to see sin, we need to see the sin of hypocrisy As God sees it. As God sees it. For what it is. What is this sin we call hypocrisy? False pretense. Insincerity. Dishonesty. Deceitfulness. Duplicity. Double standards. Double dealings. Being two-faced. Why does our society have so many words for this, by the way? Have you ever wondered that? Why are there so many words for this sin? We know why, because it's all too common, right? There's many words to describe it because it's so common. Or the opposite, sincerity, truthfulness, forthrightness, honesty, openness, transparency, genuineness. These are words for the opposite. Hypocrisy, when someone pretends to be who they are not or to have done what they have not done, especially pretending to be moral, just, or virtuous when we are not. We see it in our kids. You know, we ask the child, did you do this? Me? Why would you think I did something like that, right? Duplicity or dishonesty, right? And it's not just the kids. That's the problem, isn't it? It's in our heart. 
It's very interesting, though. Our society despises those who are hypocrites. The media always calls them out, right? The politicians, of course, everyone picks on the politicians, but they're not the only sinners in this society. We, our society calls them out. Media despises hypocrites, and yet the world is addicted to hypocrisy. People admire authenticity, genuineness, transparency. These virtues are held up in society, even an unchristian society. They're admired, and yet everyone seems to specialize in quite the opposite. Duplicity and double-dealing. And not only that, hypocrisy is a gateway drug to all the sins of the Ninth Commandment. It's a gateway drug. It's the thing that introduces you to it. It starts there. You take a little nuance and it becomes a twisted web of all kinds of deceit. Little so-called white lies, just little fudges of the truth and twists and bends, soon become a huge system of falsehood. It's not just the kids here that are guilty of this. The little heart sins, so the things that we excuse and just brush away, quickly leads to a lifestyle of hypocrisy, double-dealing, living the lie. The Ninth Commandment. What does the Ninth Commandment require of us? I think it might be in your program, the Heidelberg Catechism, is it? Heidelberg Catechism, question 112. It says it very well. What does the Ninth Commandment require? That's the one about telling the truth, right? It says that I bear false witness against no one. Twist no one's words. Be no backbiter or slander. Join in condemning no one unheard or rashly. But that, I, that on pain of God's heavy wrath, I avoid all lying and deceit as the very works. I don't have to tell you this. We know this, don't we? Why do, we have to be reminded of it, don't we? Even if we hear it a hundred times, we have to be reminded of it. Because our hearts are naturally deceitful. Naturally deceitful. How does God's word describe the sin of hypocrisy? Verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 4, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Verse 9, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Is hypocrisy a sin against other people? Or is it a sin against God? Or both? It's actually a sin against both, isn't it? And particularly other people, particularly against God. Our false pretense provokes God's spirit. That's what Peter's words are saying, isn't it? Trying to get away with as much as possible. That's, that's what we're doing, but we're doing it against God in heaven. But this is not an innocent thing, is it? You have not lied against, lied to man, but to God. It's like, it's like throwing stones at a sleeping lion. 
You know, you throw a stone and you see if he wakes up. And you throw a stone and you see if he lifts his head. And you, you throw a stone at that lion, right? We were in the Kruger a week and a half ago. And the lions were just there. They were sleeping. Just imagine throwing a stone at that lion, right? Just little stones. Little stones. That's what our sins are like. We throw little stones. Little stones at the sleeping lion. And we're, we're tempting that lion. We're testing that lion, aren't we? That's, what, that's the word that Peter uses here. Not being... Well, it's dumb. It's foolish. Because what happens? Eventually, that lion is going to, to wake up, right? Then we have a problem. You have not lied to man, but to God. We may think that we're only pretending before other people, but God sees our hypocrisy as sin against Him. Living the lie in His presence. You know the word quorum deo? All of life is in God's presence. Quorum deo, in the face of God. And so we are living in the face of God, in God's presence. It's not what other people see of our characters that is important. Well, that's important. It's important to us because it's about our self-image, right? Our, our presentation to others, who we think we are in their, in their estimation. But that's not the point here. The point is, how does God see us? What does God see when we're just twisting those words a little bit? When we're bending the rules a little bit, trying to get away with it as much as possible? Speaking to myself here, we're not living in the presence of others we're living in the presence of God. And it says in the Psalms, Psalm 94, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. And in the book of Hebrews 2, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing the thoughts, right? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hypocrisy is a sin against God. And hypocrisy, it's even worse, is stirred up by Satan. So when we as Christians are living a lie, whether it be a, a big lie in the world's estimation or a small lie, it's against God and it's also stirred up by Satan. Did you catch what Peter says? Did you catch what Peter says about this? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You see, Satan is the father of lies, isn't he? And he stirs up this lie in our hearts. Children of God learn to walk in truth and integrity. But children of the devil practice deceit and deception. That's strong language, but that's language actually from Jesus. He called the lying, hypocrite, critical church leaders of his day, he said, you are of your father, the devil. And that's what Peter is saying here as well. Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, remember, Ananias is compared to the other man, right, in chapter 4. Barnabas and Ananias, the two people that are compared in this passage. And Peter says of Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? And what had the, what had the word just said about the other man, Barnabas? He was a good man and filled with the Holy Spirit. One filled with the Holy Spirit to be a son of encouragement and to be a man of generosity and, and build up the church. The other one filled by Satan, according to Peter, to be an example for all not to follow. An example of hypocrisies and lies. Hypocrisy is sin against God. Hypocrisy is stirred up by Satan. 
And then hypocrisy results in death. It results in death. And that's what happened, right? Ananias and his wife died. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. In our churches, even. In my heart, even. Thankfully, we don't usually immediately die when we sin against God by living a lie. Because otherwise, we would all be dead. But it often happens slowly, doesn't it? Because hypocrisy is a gateway drug to all sins against God, the Ninth Commandment sins. And haven't we seen it, how people slowly, slowly turn away from the truth as they practice the lie? We all know people like that who maybe at one time used to be part of a church and living as decent people, but slowly, gradually, step by step, step by step, they were led astray by Satan's lie. And so they died spiritually. And we've even seen it, fathers slowly stepping away from the truth leading their children to hell with them. As I was going through this morning, I thought of an example from years ago. A man in our church community who was guilty of embezzlement. And I thought, the thought crossed my mind, I wonder where his kids are today. I wonder where his kids are today. And I'd, you know, it's almost certain that unless God pulled those kids back from their destruction, the path their father took, that he led them astray, didn't he? It's almost certain. That's what we've seen it before. We've often seen it. It's a gateway drug, this thing called hypocrisy. And so why am I saying this? Why does God's word give us this picture? Not to make us feel all guilty and depressed and leave this place in despair, because then somehow or other we haven't really got the full message, have we? We get to this point so that we don't still keep trying to pretend as if somehow it's not us, but rather we just open our hearts to the Lord and say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, because that's me. I'm being described here, just like Ananias. I'm, I'm, I'm being stirred up by Satan to be double-tongued and, and duplicity, uh, full of duplicity. What is God's cure for the sin of hypocrisy? Can I tell you another story? The best story in the world. It starts bad, though. Are you ready? It starts with a lie. Genesis 3, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. Remember that lie? That was the lie of Satan, wasn't it? And that's the beginning of the story that God tells us in his word. A beautiful story, actually, about how those who have believed the lie and actually lived the lie can be rescued, can be delivered from that, that trap of deception. Adam believed Satan's lie. And as a result, well, our human nature now is full of deceit, right? It comes naturally. We don't have to teach our children how to be liars. Well, they see it in our characters, I suppose, but it comes naturally in their hearts, their sinful hearts. But Christ came, and that's really the climax of the story, isn't it? Christ came, and he lived the truth in every way. Never, never did he tell a lie. Not once did he act a little bit out of character. 
Not once did he kind of fudge the truth or present it from a different perspective to make his version look better. Not once did he ever suggest anything. I mean, it must have, he must have stood out as a child, right? Well, his mother noticed a difference because he always lived the truth and he always spoke the truth and he always defended the truth. And in the end, he died for the truth. So not, Christ, Christ came to live a lie, and not only that, he died in the place of liars. The other half of his beautiful atoning work on the cross, substitutionary atonement, dying for liars. He stood, I deserve to die like Ananias, but Christ took my place. That's the gospel story, isn't it? That's the best story in the world. Christ took my place, he died for me, so that I can live. And now Christ lives again. And he will rescue me from this body of death. I'm still dragging around this body. I'm still finding myself... Well, you think it's hard to listen to this. It's even harder to preach it. Because we can't, we can't pretend as if it's not there, right, in our hearts. And yet Christ lives again. He's on the throne. And he's forgiving us. He's, he's even praying for us liars and hypocrites. He's praying for us even now that we will confess our sins as his word is preached. There is hope for habitual liars, for Christian hypocrites. You know, we talked about that when we started. The worst kind of hypocrites are Christian hypocrites. And we can point fingers at other examples, right? But the worst kind of hypocrites are Christian hypocrites. And Christ died for Christian hypocrites, the worst kind of sinners. And that's really the message, isn't it? If you remain in your lies, you will die step by step into hell. And you'll take others with you. I hope not. But if the Spirit of Christ fills you and gives you grace to believe this promise, this, this best story of Jesus Christ, we live. And really, that's the turning, that's the, 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 the most tragic verse, is verse 8. Peter said to her, Sapphira, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now just think of how the story would have gone if her answer were, was different. And she said, and we're all holding our breath, right? We're all holding our breath now. What is she going to say? How is she going to answer Peter's question? Is it all going to spill out? Yeah, it's, it's so awful what my husband is doing. I tried to warn him. He, I, I told him he shouldn't do this. Please forgive us. Please forgive me. Right? She doesn't know that her husband is dead. If she had done that, do you think she would have died? Of course not. Because Jesus died for repenting hypocrites. But she didn't. And she said, yes. And she died. That's the turning point, isn't it? Do you believe the story about Christ who died for hypocrites? Do you believe that he forgives your sins? Even the worst kind of sins, lying, lying in his presence, lying to God. Or are you still trying, somehow or other, to hide sin in your heart? You will not prosper, the word says. You, how long do you think you're going to get away with it? God could kill you immediately, but in his grace and mercy, he hasn't yet. 
He's still giving us time to repent. And he's still holding out his arms, as it were, and says, come to me. He says, Jesus, come. Come, and I'll forgive you. I'll wash you clean. I'll, give you, I'll fill you with my spirit of grace so that you can be a son and daughter of encouragement and not a son of the devil. How should we all respond to this truth? Well, we look to Jesus, don't we? We look to Jesus again. He's lifted up in the word. We say, we need him. We need him. We come with repentance. We come with confession to God, to Christ. We come with faith by grace. We come opening our hearts to God and saying, my sin, I can't hide it anymore. Here it is, God. Take it. Jesus, wash it clean. Holy Spirit, cleanse me through the merits of Christ, the blood of Jesus. Let me conclude with just a few lessons, four lessons, as we draw this sermon to to a concluding application. The first one is this. Your hypocrisy will be exposed by God one day. Our hypocrisy, my hypocrisy, will be exposed by God on the last day. Because it says so, right? At the judgment throne, great white throne, all the books will be open. Total exposure. Nothing will stand naked, as it were, before God. Nothing to cover us. It's almost like this is a legal disclaimer. You know, you, you go places sometimes and you read those signs, right? This message stands as a formal warning and stands to confirm your, that your bureaucracy is unacceptable before God, right? Anything you say will and can, can and will be used against you. God is, God is, God is not, he's not joking here. This story, sometimes you say, oh, it kind of takes away from the whole narrative of Acts. In another way, though, it actually highlights the purity of the witness, doesn't it? And it stands as a warning. Unconfessed hypocrisy leads to spiritual death. So, my friends, whatever it is, and I don't, I don't know you. I have that advantage, I suppose. Many of you, I don't Well, Some of you I know a bit. But, you know, there are things in our lives we would rather not have other people know. Often, right? If you're trying to still cover over and hide something like that, now is the time to deal with it. Uh, find a trusted friend, a Christian friend you can confide in, maybe to help you work it through, the pastor here or some of the other leaders. Work through these issues. Confess sins to God because unconfessed sins will fester and grow worse. This gateway drug isn't going to just be innocent and, and help you out in times of difficulty. It's going to lead to your death unless you confess it. So stop trying to live a lie. But then secondly, Christ's gospel is a cure, isn't it? It's a cure for all of our sins and especially the sin of hypocrisy. If Satan has a hold of our heart in one area or another, right? If there's something in our lives that is, 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 is there, we're giving a foothold to Satan. And he's ready to climb in like a criminal climbing through the window. But Christ has given the death blow to Satan already. And through Christ and his spirit, we can be victorious in this fight against the evil one. By faith in Christ, we too can be delivered and be given grace. Grace to, to put away lying thoughts and lying hearts. 
and grace to live lives of, of obedience, of holiness, of truth-speaking and sincerity and honesty and integrity lived out in our lips and through our lives. Being filled with the Spirit of Christ and His truth is the only cure against Satan's deceitful schemes. And that's how we are called to live, aren't we? The third point, we are called to live as witnesses of the truth. I have no time to unpack this more. Christian hypocrites are the worst kind because they they detract from the witness of of the gospel in a community and society. But Christians who are living close to Christ by His Spirit, living the truth as true witnesses of Christ, what a beautiful testimony of grace they are in society to a whole community. So let us excel in truth-speaking. Look again, Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 112. Uh, it, it says that in matters of judgment and justice and in all other affairs, I love, speak honestly, and confess the truth. That's the opposite of lying, isn't it? Also, as insofar as I can, defend and promote my neighbor's good name. So honest confession of the truth and sincerity and uprightness. And then finally, this passage, the greater passage, starting from chapter 4, verse 32, is about gospel fellowship. Gospel fellowship, the beauty of gospel fellowship. Chapter 4, verse 32. And then 33, it says great power. The apostles were were giving testimony and great grace was upon them all. So mega power and mega grace. And then look at verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. And great fear came upon all the church, all who heard these things. Verse 13, the people held them in high esteem. Verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Great fear, that's respect and reverence for God's truth. That's the outcome of God organizing church discipline in this situation. Great fear, great grace is evident, and great power in the witness of Christ in that society. You see, gospel fellowship was, 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 was purified and maintained and matured by the Holy Spirit working through faithful church leaders. That's what we see in this passage, don't we? We see a beautiful example of, of, of the church. We see a challenge coming against it from the inside, actually. God's word dealing with that challenge properly. And the result was a mature community of believers. The purity of gospel's fellowship is very precious to God. He takes it very seriously. He doesn't exclude anyone. The gospel is for everyone, right? But this is a holy club, not in ourselves holy, but made holy by the Holy Spirit himself who purifies us through the merits of Christ. And then as a result, the witness of gospel fellowship is very powerful. So, what do we learn? Well, it's a warning against hypocrisy, certainly. But it's also an encouragement. An encouragement to look to Christ again and again and again. To be purified and strengthened and built up. And also a warning, I think, a call to accountability. And a reminder that we must grow by the Spirit's guidance and by the grace of Christ. Let's pray for that together, shall we? 
Father, please work these graces in the heart of every person.